Dangerous Twisted Mystery Podcast. Less cozy, more ugly. Warping listeners' minds since 2022. Music by Dangerous. Narrated by Twisted. Chapter 41. Third Nights. The third night was also the third dinner Wagner cooked in Legacy's kitchen. The regularity of having three at the table was beginning to show in their conversation, especially with Chess, who was beginning to look at the young agent as a trusted entity. Their candid conversations about middle school social politics for girls left Legacy in a fog. The emotion that ran through every schoolyard discussion, such as the girls who were vulnerable to any mention of their shape, baffled him. It didn't matter if they looked perfect, if they wore the wrong color, or if they wore the right color in diagonal instead of horizontal stripes, or the rumors about who was going to give what signals before the girl's choice dance so that the girl could ask the boy she wanted without really taking a risk. The topic of a girl's choice dance launched Wagner into an anecdote about how she'd hooked a boy's belt loop to a tetherball rope when he'd said no. She'd later found out that he had a crush on her, but his family was going out of town. The schoolyard humiliation put a damper on their love. Chad Harper, or Dangling Chad, as he was known until he moved, had never forgiven her. Chess bubbled over with laughter on the third night. She wanted to know everything about Wagner. How she dressed and got her hair that way. She even brought up the topic of cooking. Legacy couldn't believe it. Chess was the girl who once threatened to dye her hair pink in rebellion if Legacy brought home a cookware set. But there they were, chatting about how Wagner had clarified the butter before letting the parsley soak into and add to the character of the fish. Chess hated fish. She asked for a second helping, then let fly with the most candid comment of the night. Do you think I might look beautiful someday? Her face shone in youthful innocence. Whatever Wagner said would be taken far too seriously. Wagner responded, You are beautiful right now. Chess continued analytically, But not like you. I'm two categories below at least. I'm friendly shy pretty, Chess said, dangling her fork over the ridges of the herb-encrusted cod on her plate. Legacy took a hold of one hand of each young woman. He said in his most deep, rich, supportive tone, Do you know what makes a woman truly beautiful? It was a melody, a resonant command tone that made Chess and Wagner both catch their breath in a trance waiting for the answer. Legacy let his eyes wander back and forth. He was in complete control and it was time for the answer. A cup of hot black coffee. The dishes were cleared and dinner concluded with Wagner promising to help Chess with her makeup next time she came over. This raised an eyebrow with Legacy. No makeup, Legacy said. Wagner crossed behind Legacy and in a breath brushed his ear. A confidential message. Her friends are getting tattoos and piercings. Do you really want to wait until it gets to that? Chess stood at the table. I know you guys are talking about me. I'm just going to go to my room and cry myself to sleep. Can I get either of you anything first? She knew exactly how much sass could be excused. Legacy grumbled, then relented. No lipstick. The thumbs up from Wagner sent Chess skipping from the room. Good night, Dad. Good night, Angela. 
Legacy couldn't remember having heard Chess say her name out loud before. It made him think about whether or not he liked the name for the person. Wagner caught him staring at her. I know, I should never wear white. She pointed to a stain on the white shoulder strap. Oh no, I was looking at your body. To see if it fit. Fit what? Your name. Wagner must have had a couple of glasses of red wine with dinner, because she did a playful twirl, shifting weight between her legs to put motion into her skirt. Legacy parried with, I like the name Angela better when it's said than when it's on paper. He left the room before he could show any of the embarrassment he should have felt sooner. Later that night, around three, Wagner stumbled into the living room door, her blouse untucked, names and numbers tumbling around in her head so much so that she was distracted to the point of finding Legacy's voice unexpected. Good night, he said without purpose or agenda. It was the closest he'd come to issuing courtesy to another person in years. Wagner, her feet so heavy the carpet felt like quicksand, was in no condition to appreciate the gesture. She casually nodded her weary head and left the room. Legacy was back on the trail of the manifest for the satellite parts delivery. It had seemed so promising, but it turned out that Blue was too smart to have the parts shipped to the same P.O. box twice. The pickup in Provo identified the model receiver that the vinyl men were using, and narrowed the corridor, but it didn't point to a door. They might be able to sit on the next order if only they had a year to crack the case. Legacy missed his old job. The paper he was holding had Tracy's name at the top. It was an autopsy report. Legacy drifted into an inner dialogue between himself and the trial lawyer father of Tracy. The father had found the body. His deposition was one of the more poignant and eloquent retracing of steps that Legacy had ever read. Legacy was transported to the morgue watching the father standing over his daughter. The man hadn't talked directly to his daughter in years, and yet his memory of her recounted in testimony to the police made her into a perfect child. He embraced her dead body, and her lifelong defiance of him and all he stood for all slipped out of his hands, and he was holding his perfect child again. Beep! Legacy came back to the present. He found his arms cradling the paper from which he was reading. Notes in the margins, with answers to questions that he had for the father about what a person looking at his daughter on a TV screen would notice immediately. In scraggy handwriting was one word. Defiance. Legacy found the phone on the 11th ring. The voice on the other end didn't have time for greetings and launched right into, It leaked. It was Tyke. What leaked? Legacy asked. 37 seconds ago, on the internet. His voice was strained. Legacy tried to put him at ease. What took you so long to call? Tyke had always been highly strung. Whatever it was, it wasn't as bad as Tyke thought. His system for picking the girls off satellite TV is in the fucking press. Legacy retreated within himself with those burning words as his company. He let the receiver drop from his ear. He watched his one secret advantage slip back into Blue's hands through the public domain. Legacy rediscovered an anger that he'd thought he'd tamed with all the routines and regimens. Someone was going to pay for this mistake, and he knew that it most likely would be in blood. But before that would happen, he was going to get to the bottom of this. Legacy made one call, and he spoke deliberately. He gave orders and used every emotional leverage point to give those orders 
the full force and weight of one country and God. And when he was done, the director of the FBI, one of the most powerful men on the planet, obeyed. He was about to get underway in the early hours of the morning and come to Legacy. Legacy hadn't reported the selection process to anyone up the chain of command. His knuckles crackled under a tight grip as he asked Dorner if he knew. A pause. Then it came back that he did. Legacy told the director how much had been compromised by this leak and that everyone up the chain of information had to be coaxed to the meeting. There was a traitor in the group. Security around the building was stepped up with the surprise arrival of the highest dignitary short of the president. Legacy walked through a large glass front door to a bustle of activity that crisscrossed the lobby. He still hadn't explained to Wagner the details. All she knew was that he'd called an important meeting and that if shit and quicksand could mix, that was the cocktail he preferred to serve in a huge trough beneath the entire gathering. He was going to be pulling someone down in the way he used to do in the field. Without regret, thought, or remorse, he would destroy someone today. Chapter 42. Dry Sparks. Legacy blasted through the conference doors like a cannon. He icily regarded the clerks serving coffee and took command. Everyone could feel the unleashing of his explosive power. No coffee, nothing to eat, nobody gets comfortable. The clerks looked at Director Dorner, who nodded, confirming that he was in charge inside the confines of these very special circumstances. Cups were whisked from the table, and Legacy's eyes toured the room. Dorner, Wilkes, and Bailey sat awkwardly on the receiving end of a ten-minute diatribe. Three members of Wilkes' staff sat across the table. One pass of the eyes told him that any one of them could buckle under ten seconds of scrutiny. They were educated, but untested in the field. People who spend time in the field look like Wilkes and Dorner. They wouldn't give up their secrets without a fight. Dorner brought one thin, freakishly tall secretary whose devotion shone out from behind her plain looks and bookish chic glasses. She'd do anything to protect the man sitting across from her. Legacy held up a newspaper, banner headline citing, Abducted Girls TV Ties. How did they get this? He processed every move in the room, the head scratch to the shifting in the seat. Nobody should have known, but you all did, right? Dorner was the object of his abrupt tone, and although inwardly offended, he nodded with great civility. His secretary tightened her grip on a pen that she used to take notes and practically snarled at Legacy. Legacy prowled the room, and Wagner caught a glimpse of what made him so good in the interrogation room. Nothing escaped his senses. He laid out the rules, hands on the table, palms up. One question that everyone at the table had to answer looking into his eyes. Did you leak this information? One by one, they stared into Legacy's eerie still pupils and gave their answers. One by one, the answer no seemed to take all of their energy to pronounce, and the relief was palpable when their turn was over. The feeling of possible guilt weighed as heavily upon the room as the real thing. Wagner watched the circle come round to her, standing at the door. She felt something grip her from the inside as he swiveled on her with a questioning look. She heard a voice rise inside of her. I, I'm the spy. I reported on your progress. Legacy took one look at Bailey and confirmed what Wagner had said. 
His eyes lost their intensity for just one moment. Then he said in a voice that Wagner would never forget, Did you leak it to the press? She wanted to weep, to break down right there. She wanted Legacy to know the answer without asking the question that she'd failed him. She'd failed Laura, too, she realized. Her mouth moved, but no words came out. Legacy had his answer. Of course you didn't. She felt for a moment that she was being forgiven, but his next words came as quickly with venom. But you gave away this investigation to whoever did. They'd all passed the test. Legacy put a single finger down on the table and pressed. It was meant to focus his mind to one spot, but his thoughts were moving in a thousand directions. There had to be someone else who knew. Tyke respected secrets more than he did his own brilliance. Wagner, he hadn't seen it coming, but he did know that she'd never jeopardize a clean collar on the vinyl men. He couldn't be that wrong about her. His eyes snapped up from the table, and one final question for Dorner. There's no one else who knew this information. Absolutely none, he said, thinking that Legacy must have failed to find the leak. However, in that line, he was completely wrong. In that moment, Legacy figured out exactly who it was. He just didn't want to believe it. Have security escort the aides to holding. I need to talk to the directors in private. Wagner touched his left shoulder, and he practically flinched. Legacy, her voice pleaded. Get out, he responded. You would have known anyway when you asked, she said. Legacy took her hand from his shoulder and replaced it by her side, like he was posing a doll with great care, but emotional attachment that vanished the second it was in place. I wasn't going to ask you. Legacy didn't read the people closest to him. It was something he couldn't tell her before, and he didn't expect that she'd ever know now. Bailey left the room like it was a matinee performance, a lazy smile on his lips. Wagner didn't make eye contact even when he brushed by her in the doorway. She was still looking back at Legacy. Even when the chamber doors shut with her on the other side, she didn't feel like she'd escaped the pull of Legacy. She knew how the fish must feel not understanding the tug from inside, but knowing that their guts were being ripped out on every struggling motion. She couldn't help believing that she deserved to be on that hook. Whatever was going on in that conference room buzzed in the shadows of the corridors well beneath the lowest levels of the superstructure. Legacy was in control of the entire building, and his energy powered the turbines that kept the oxygen moving. He allowed people to breathe his air. Wagner reached their office and slumped into his chair, taking a deep breath and slowly exhaling. Legacy dropped his interrogation powerhouse persona the minute the door closed behind Wagner, as it was no longer necessary. Everyone in the room knew it. He reached out a long arm across to shake Director Wilk's hand. Congratulations, Daniel. Your men passed. A look of confusion crossed Director Dorner. Then Legacy extended his other hand. The same for you, Bob. They stood in an awkward triangle, both shaking a different hand of Legacy's. So it was all Wagner, Director Dorner asked, pulling back. I didn't say that, Bob. Pulling his hand forward so that he could shake it in synchronization with Director Wilkes. Is this some sort of test? Wilkes asked impatiently. Legacy dropped both hands suddenly. You know it is. You also know that I didn't find a single liar in the bunch. There were only two people who could have lied to me on the first try and gotten it past me. But only you and Daniel... 
or observing my behavior, the trait of a guilty man trying to discover what he's let slip. Wilkes smiled and chuckled. So you think it's me? Legacy drilled straight into his cerebral cortex and came out on the other side with a core sample. Visually, of course. I know it is. Wilkes looked between Dorner and Legacy. His affable smile dropped as he spoke. Do you want to interrogate me? Wilkes had seen Legacy in the room. It was the mental equivalent of a turn-of-the-century dentistry with no anesthetic and a very dull drill. The cost of spending 15 minutes fighting Legacy was a price that he was unwilling to pay. He turned to Dorner. I have nothing to show for endless hours on this case, and let's face it, this lead represented a less-than-zero chance of honing in on them. I needed an excuse, for when this case did not end favorably, for Christ's sakes, we all know that this is the most important case in the history of the agency. Legacy's crackpot theories appeared to be a way not to shoulder the entire blame. Wilkes' pragmatic tone and military bearing gave these words spoken in cowardice and confession a noble bent. I chose a target, someone who everyone would believe would take his eye off the ball and fuck up the case. Legacy added, Never mind we're old friends, eh? I never liked you, Legacy. He stared him down. Legacy took the temperature of his words. Yes, Daniel, you did, he said with finality. Dorner stood in a slow, calculated motion, and he spoke in slow, calculated phrases. I can't replace you, Agent Wilkes. It would take a month to bring someone up to speed, Legacy, you have my apologies, but I'm in Daniel's corner on the viability of this lead. It was worse than a needle in the haystack. Still, you should have failed on your own merits, not with the carpet ripped out from under you. Daniel, there will be repercussions when... Dorner folded his hands in front of himself, hearing his own slip of the tongue. I mean, if this does not end favorably. Now, this discussion has been a great waste of time. Dorner left the room, like a trailing edge of a cloudburst with Wilkes quickly on his heels. Legacy could tell that Wilkes didn't want another word to have to pass between them. Whether it was a shame or animus, it was hard to tell. Chapter 43. Dope Friend. Blade kissed both of his hands in a tender gesture before putting them to Laura's temples and massaging in a therapy oil that he'd applied in two small circular dabs. Any more would be far too much, as she was on the maximum dose. He'd found the mixture on one of his trips to Mexico. It was dissolved in a cyclohexane solvent that allowed the drug to be soaked in through the skin. The drug itself was organic, but it made librarians into hippies in front of a person's eyes. Behavior alteration was one of the secrets of the sex trade. Everyone loved to watch his girls break out of their molds, but what they and the other girls never knew was that by increasing the amount of oil that went into their temples, Blue could create a level of initiative and erase the boundaries of what constituted the molds of their sober lives. How much have I made you? she asked in a slur. The drug's effects were the most strong at the point of application. If a drop got on her jaw or lips, they became numb. Blue worried for a moment that he'd become careless and would have to postpone the next session. He hated anything that threw off his timetable. After all, as she reminded him with cliché words, time is money. 
She was like a taxi ride where bells dinged and a fare accrued. Laura took the pencil in her hand and lifted it to Blue's face. He flinched, thinking that if she wasn't so completely under his control, it would end up in his eye, and they'd be in a bloody fight within moments. He knew, however, that she'd become attached to him, even more so than the other girls. Still, there was something that made him uneasy at moments like this, with her wide, mirrored eyes training on him and the low, husky sound of her breath tickling his ear. It was like he could hear the rumble of a distant thunder, a sound of deception inside of her. The sharp tip of the eyebrow pencil drew down the bridge of Blade's vinyl nose, then playfully around the nostril. Blue almost laughed in earnest, but cleared his throat instead and pulled back. She couldn't follow him far. Her body was tied down under a web netting of inch-wide leather straps. There was nothing on her face. It was naked. Blue thought about how he would wet the straps just before the session, and then they would shrink, start to pull, cutting into her soft skin. By the end, she would surely be gasping for air with a constricted ribcage and clawing at the individual straps for the relief that would only come with his knife. She would beg for him to pull out his knife. He wasn't ready to kill her yet, but he foamed at the idea of trying out a scene without cutting beneath her skin. He bristled inside, but maintained a kind of hesitant charm in his voice. I'm so sorry I have to do this, but it's what they want. He poured a bucket of water over her body. You don't fool me, said the glistening Laura. Her eyes were so far away that it was impossible to make out what she'd meant. Blue felt uneasy, so he attempted to calm her. He would give her a reward before sending her in front of the cameras. You're past a hundred and fifty million. I think you might become the single most expensive object ever sold by the time this is over, he told her, looking at his watch and fleeing the room. The broadcast was about to start. He would be as angry at himself for a delay as he would any of his men. Well, almost. The control room had a bank of televisions, and it didn't take him a second to hone in on the one spewing the minutiae that penetrated his own interests. He didn't need to turn up the volume. Reading the ticker on the bottom was enough. Code for choosing co-ed sex slaves broken. TV primetime lineup where they get picked. Don't let your daughters on TV between 4 to 7, Pacific. Chapter 44. The Gang The Gang of Five had owned the Flophouse for over 40 years. It was a farmhouse surrounded by waving fields of brown grass and covered with the remnants of failed farming rusted past recognition, waiting to infect the careless trespasser with tetanus. There were now over 30 members in the biker Gang of Five, but none dwelt on the irony of the name. The leader, Big Dog, an impossibly ugly man, always joked that nobody in the group could count, so it hardly mattered. Bikes stood at all angles at the bottom of the long wooden staircase that led to the stretched porch area. A keen eye would notice that the bikes progressed in value walking up the path until the nicest bike, Big Dog's, practically sat on top of the rotting, angled top step. It was the way Big Dog liked it, he didn't have to swing his leg over the saddle. He just eased off the first step onto his ride. The Gang of Five was a bit of an ugly operation, working outside of the bounds of even the lax rules of biker society. It's hard to imagine what kind of fraternity would be scowled upon in a community of bikers that accepted nearly every shade and nuance of brutality and vice within its shelter, until someone heard their job description. They stole bikes. 
Big Dog sidestepped a comatose comrade on the way to the phone, then kicked him as an afterthought. Get the fuck off the floor. The biker stirred. I got a business call or I'd stomp your balls. If I could find them. <laughs> this was the snitch call he'd been waiting for. There was a group of Canadian bikers, the Pussies, or at least that's the name Big Dog gave him in his head. They were rolling through Chugwater on their way to Sheridan, and they were all businessmen riding on new custom bikes. This was their vacation, and Big Dog was going to show them some hospitality. He was going to be their native guide and lead them to a bus terminal where they could buy their ticket home. Twelve custom bikes would fetch about a hundred grand, and that was if the fence cheated them blind, an expectation that was usually met. Big Dog was violent and imposing to regular folk, but other core riders knew that they could take advantage of him. He wasn't someone to be feared. He owed people debts, not the other way around. He'd put the tip of his knife to the pupil of a rival, but he'd never push it in. He picked up the phone and found himself speaking to someone who had. Hello, Big Dog. Blade's attempt at warmth was more sinister than most people could conjure on a meth binge. Wasn't hard to find you. I wasn't running. Sweat broke out across his entire body, and he looked out the window like a reckoning wasn't far behind. Big Dog was practically panting. Uh, where are you? You want to invite me over? Sure. Really? His voice sounded like a creaky door. We're still friends, right? He knew they weren't friends. One of his rookies had made the mistake of pulling some chrome off of Blade's bike about three years back. He remembered his name because Blade had made him repeat it for two hours on a video recording. Blade made him repeat over and over, I am Keith Logger, and I'm going to die. He tortured him after each time he said it, like he was completing the meaning of the phrase, and if he didn't say it, he'd cut off a finger or the first available joint. There were four discrete joints in the finger, and by the time the offender died, he had only three fingers left. He'd sent the recording to Big Dog with the promise to repeat the process on him. Big Dog offered everything he had to get the bounty off his head, and then he had sent two paid assassins after him. Blade sent back the killers with a thank you note. He hadn't harmed them at all. Big Dog had asked the men why they'd gotten the response. He didn't seem to think that trying to kill him was personal. Big Dog knew that the debt was personal, and the bribe had been rebuffed over a payphone in Oklahoma. Big Dog remembered it like the dying words of his mother, which were, you'd never run over your own mother. Blade had said, that's not the way I want you to pay. Big Dog asked, is there anything I can do? Blade answered, nothing. The echoes of that conversation still rang in Big Dog's head as he moved through the house, filling his pockets with secret stashes of money and weapons. A cache of cocaine hidden behind a wall socket spent like pure green. He pulled up the carpet tack strips in the corner of his room and picked out a pistol from the water-damaged hollow. All the time he kept up a distracted half-conversation. Uh, so, how have you been? There was a rumor that someone finally caught up with you and, well, you know. There's something I want from you. Big Dog froze. Was this a real offer or was it a trick? You're going to need all the weapons that you've been grunting around collecting. <laughs> you got me wrong. I'm on the can. He dropped his handgun. Your shit sounds like a semi-automatic hitting the floor. <laughs> you've got it all wrong. I'll make you eat that shit if you don't shut up and listen. 
and then you do this and you're free. Blade explained the task. Big Dog was going on a killing spree. Blade described the specific method of death for each of the targets. He made Big Dog write them down in such detail that Big Dog thought Blade must really want to do the job himself, and the delegation was only possible if it were done exactly as specified. Flip the main breaker when you're done. That's important. Why? That'll tell me you've finished the job. Big Dog wanted to ask how, but the snarl in Blade's voice quieted him. Blade saved the names and addresses for the end. It was the icing on the sadistic cake that shocked the Big Dog to the point of interruption. Are you shitting me? This is who you want dead. Blade let the silence crackle in between them. Rural Wyoming phone lines were still primarily underground copper lines from the turn of the century. The effect was a background static that presented itself as almost a message. Don't ask questions, or I might show up personally to answer them. Big Dog understood, but at the same time he couldn't believe who he was asked, rightly told, to slaughter. This was the kind of hit that would cement Blade's already legendary brutality. It was impossible that he or anyone would give this kind of order. It was inhumane. Big Dog spat tobacco juice down onto his belly. A self-respecting hyena wouldn't pick over these bones, he thought. Uh, when do we go? You roll now.